Hey church, Pastor Mike here, uh, recording an audio uh, version of my sermon, unfortunately, in the service on July 2nd of 2023. The live stream cut out uh, just a few minutes into my sermon, and uh, we weren't recording a backup copy of it, and so I wanted to make sure to record a copy of this sermon because this passage in particular is one, it's a fascinating passage. Uh, it's one also that I think many Christians uh, take out of context and use it even sometimes to justify bad behavior. And so uh, just really important uh, for us. We're gonna be studying Jesus cleansing out the temple. And so this sermon actually is the first sermon of a mini ser sermon series that is closing out our larger sermon series just as we've been kind of walking through uh, the life of Jesus. And so this sermon uh, is begins a series on the final week of Jesus's life. And so uh, Jesus cleansing the temple takes place on Monday, uh, when uh, the week that Jesus was crucified on Friday. And so a uh, fascinating passage, uh, excited for it. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. I'm going uh, through Mark's account of this, and I will be reading from the Christian Standard Version for this sermon. So uh, whatever version you have is great. So hopefully you have your Bible with you and uh, you can turn there. I'm going to read it and then pray and then we will dive in. Mark 11, beginning in chapter 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask uh, that you would use this time uh, to help us to see what you want us to see in your word, uh, change our hearts, help us to love you more, help us to think more of Jesus, and uh, live our lives more like him. We love you and pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, speaking of uh, living like Jesus, uh, if you were alive in the 90s, there is a very good chance that you owned a bracelet with the letters WWJD. I wonder if you listening now, if you owned one or multiple, you know, some people had a whole bunch, they had to coordinate it, color coordinate with every outfit. Uh, WWJD is like the defining craze, I feel like, in the Christian circles in the 90s. And it seemed like everyone had one. And uh, WWJD stands for, as you probably know, what would Jesus do? And the meaning behind that's pretty simple, right? It's, uh, uh, you're going throughout your day and maybe you're tempted to react or respond to something or do something or uh, sin in a, such a way that uh, something that Jesus wouldn't do. And so you're supposed to look at your bracelet and think, well, what would Jesus do? And I'm supposed to do the same. And it was a good thing, right? It's a good reminder. There are a lot of things that Jesus did that we're supposed to do. We're called to love people like Jesus loved them. We're called to show grace to others like Jesus showed grace to us. We're called to put other people's needs ahead of our own, just like Jesus did. We're called to be humble, uh, have his mind among us, right, of humility, just like Jesus was, and so on. You could go on and on with the things that Jesus did that we're called to do as well. 
There is, however, one problem with this WWJD mindset, and that is, very simply, we can't always do the things that Jesus did, can we? I go, uh, what are you doing this weekend, Pastor Mike? Well, uh, you know, I think I'm going to go camping, and we're camping right by a lake, so I thought maybe uh, 3 o'clock in the morning I'd wake up and just uh, take a walk across the lake, right? Uh, can't do that. Uh, we can't, uh, you know, go into the hospital and heal everyone. Uh, we can't uh, go up on a mountain and summon Elijah and Moses and uh, all of a sudden start glowing. Like there's just things that Jesus did that we can't do. And so WWJD, sometimes practical, sometimes not. And the reason I bring that up is because our passage uh, that we're studying is uh, kind of right in the middle of that. What I, what I mean is I think there are some Christians that see this as something just that Jesus did, but I think there are other people who see this as something that we're called to model and imitate in some ways, that we're supposed to figure out what is what does the temple mean and what are the things that, the money changers that we're supposed to metaphorically cleanse out of the temple. Uh, Jesus cleaning the temple is one of the most famous episodes of Jesus's life, and Frankly, it's one of the most uh, popular passages for people to quote if they uh, want to act like jerks. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, maybe you come across an online Facebook debate or something where there's somebody's being real aggressive in the comments and somebody else says, you know, you're not really acting like Jesus here. And then they come back with, well, you know, Jesus turned over tables in the temple. I'm going to do that too. And Certainly nobody listening to this right now would ever say anything like that, but we do have our work cut out for us in this passage because, number one, we need to figure out what exactly Jesus was doing, and then, uh, number two, we need to decide if that is something that we're supposed to do or not. So we need to ask, why is Jesus cleansing the temple, and then what does it have to do with me? And so at the end of our time together, I'll share some examples of times we aren't uh, called to metaphorically clean out the turn over the tables and times that we are called to metaphorically turn over the tables but we can't just jump there we first need to talk about and think very uh, deeply and critically about what Jesus is doing here so look at verse 15 it says and they came to Jerusalem Jesus and the disciples and he entered the temple okay uh, stop right there we need to understand that this isn't just any old time in any old city. First of all, this is Passover, which means people are absolutely pouring in. Hundreds of thousands of people are descending on the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And uh, Jesus, remember, he just the day before had a parade down Main Street uh, with everyone hailing him as the new Messiah, as their king, he now enters the hub of activity uh, in during the biggest week of the, the year. So in the temple is where everything was going down that week, and uh, Jesus is there, and look what, what happens, look at what he does. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. All right, let's walk through this bit by bit. We really need to understand this. Otherwise, our only takeaway will be don't sell stuff in church. And uh, 
then uh, one of you wise guys will walk in and knock over like our display that's raising money for children in Guatemala and uh, don't do that, okay? Uh, we need to really figure out, it's not just the takeaway from this passage, spoiler alert, is not uh, don't sell stuff in church. Maybe I mean, that's probably a good rule of thumb, uh, but it's not what's going on here. See, Jesus isn't in a church. The church, as we understand it, doesn't exist yet. Jesus is in the, the temple. We can't just say the temple is the church like we think of it now as a church building. The temple was a building, and what was it? It was a place where people went to make sacrifices. And uh, why were they making sacrifices? For sin. And what kind of sacrifices were they making? They're making animal sacrifices. Why? Who, who told them to do that? Why were people uh, going to the temple and sacrificing animals uh, for the forgiveness of their sin? Where'd they get at that idea? Uh, from God, right? God's the one who told them to do that back in what we call the Old Testament, but uh, back then it's just called Scripture because that's what they had. And they were being obedient to what God told them to do. The temple is the place where sacrifices are being made for sin. So you have literally hundreds of thousands of people descending on this place who had done a lot of sinning and needed to make atonement for that. So what do you call it when you have hundreds of thousands of people traveling for miles and miles who all need to bring animals to a specific place at a specific time to have specific people make sacrifices for their specific sins? Well, you call that a logistical nightmare. It's a logistical nightmare. Now, my wife, Emily, and I asked her permission to share this story, she is the queen of efficiency. It is her spiritual gift, and uh, she was uh, one time working uh, for Spring Hill Camp, and uh, there was it was parents' weekend, and they had a breakfast buffet, and the line was just completely out the door, uh, and uh, it, it was not moving, and so people were waiting and kind of grumbling, and so Emily, being the queen of efficiency, walks up to the buffet table and immediately spots the problem, which is that there's only one toaster, and everyone's getting bagels, and so they'd get, put their bagel in the toaster, wait for two minutes, it toast, and then the next person, and so it was taking a long time for everyone to get through the line. And so my wife makes a, a split second decision and she simply waits for somebody's bagel to toast. And then she walks up, grabs the toaster, unplugs it and walks away. And uh, the line just immediately started moving efficiently. And um, that was the right decision to make. And uh, the point is, if everyone was going to travel with the animals that they were going to sacrifice in the temple, it would have been physically impossible to just get this whole what needed to happen to happen. And so there were some enterprising people who made the decision to do exactly what Emily, my wife, would have done in that situation. And they said, let's solve this problem and let's bring in some vendors and we'll just sell the animals here in the court of the Gentiles uh, so that people can come in and take care of everything at a one-stop shop. You see, there are different areas of the temple. There's the outer court uh, where the Jewish people and non-Jewish people were both allowed to go pray. And then there's the inner court where just Jewish people were able to go. And then inside of that was the Holy of Holies. So this time they designated this Gentile prayer spot as instead a place where they could fix this problem and solve 
animals and honestly, or sorry, excuse me, solve the problem and sell animals. And honestly, this is the most American thing I can think of in the whole Bible. Like this isn't fast food quite yet, but it's fast atonement and they're solving a logistical issue. And so before we go any further, we need to recognize that this was a completely normal thing and nobody thought a single thing about it. This was basically the only way to solve this problem. And yeah, were prices a little bit high? Was it more expensive to buy an animal in the temple versus bringing your own? Well, yeah, sure. Um, was the exchange rate messed up for the people changing money so that they could make uh, that they could buy these animals and for for foreigners who would come in and didn't have the right money? Yeah, but I mean, haven't you ever been to a major league baseball game or an airport? I mean that's just that's just what happens. I mean, come on, yeah, it's yeah they they got they got you there. Uh, they want they went through the trouble of providing the sacrifice. It's going to cost a little extra, but anyways, priests got to make money somehow, don't they? And and what I'm trying to get at with all of this is that this is a completely normal practice that nobody thought twice about, and Jesus hated it. He hated it. Why? That's the million dollar question of this passage. Why was Jesus so angry at the people selling sacrifices in the temple? There's a couple reasons that we see in our passage. Our passage gives us hints at this. The first reason that Jesus was so angry is because they were exploiting the poor. Now, this is really interesting because we have actually some very specific detail about the people that Jesus was going after. It doesn't just say he was going after the people doing business. Specifically, he was going after uh, two groups of people, right? Who were they? The people who were exchanging money. We'll come back to that. And the people who sold what? The pigeons, right? The poor pigeons. Can you imagine like that? Can you imagine that? You know, winds, wings flapping like crazy. They're probably pooping everywhere. Jesus goes after the pigeons and the people who sold them. Why? Why does he go after the pigeons? Well, the pigeons were the sacrifice of the lower class, the poor people. Scripture says if someone can't afford a spotless lamb for a sacrifice, they're allowed to sacrifice a pigeon instead. It might, in fact, you might have something in, like deep in the recesses of your mind to think about, wait a second, there's a New Testament family who uh, brought pigeons to the temple for sacrifice. And you're right. That's Jesus' family. Read about that at the beginning of Luke. Uh, when Jesus' family was little, they had to sacrifice pigeons because they couldn't afford a lamb. And so Jesus isn't just going after people for selling in an inappropriate place. Again, the point of this passage isn't uh, don't do business uh, in a place where it shouldn't be done. You know, that, that might be a, a true thing, but Jesus is very specifically and explicitly going after the people who exploit the poor for financial gain. And with everything that we've read and learned about Jesus in the last six months, that shouldn't surprise us one bit, should it? And so if you're the kind of person who runs a ministry that operates to exploit and take advantage of people who don't have financial means already, whew, boy, uh, look out. Uh, Jesus, you can be very sure that he is not happy with what you're doing. But 
uh, that's not you listening to this. At least I really hope not. Uh, if it is, you got to make some changes. But uh, we need to be careful that we don't just say like the Pharisee, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that. Uh, we need to be careful too. And if you're the kind of person or if we're the kind of church that puts a financial hurdle to discipleship or someone to co- coming to know Jesus, uh, you can be pretty sure that Jesus isn't happy. Uh, we need to be so careful about this as an American church, especially to not show favoritism and partiality like it talks about in James, to not treat uh, people who have means uh, any differently than people who don't have means, uh, to not be the kind of place where people feel like they need to make a certain amount of money if they're going to fit in or to be in leadership, right? It's always a danger for a church, especially a church in our cultural context, to operate that way. And we need to be careful. Jesus is angry, first and foremost, uh, because uh, these uh, salespeople in the court of the Gentiles were exploiting the, the poor. But uh, that's the first reason. And there's another reason why Jesus was angry, which is that uh, they weren't welcoming the foreigner, the Gentile. Jesus didn't just go after the pigeon sellers. Like we said, he also went after the money changers. Who would have needed to change money? Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people who wanted to sacrifice to the God of Israel. They would have needed to exchange their money with the money changers. And uh, so Jesus uh, goes after these money changers as well. And, And actually, he goes one step further. He actually starts teaching the people around him. And look at verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all the nations. If Gentiles weren't allowed to go into the inner court of the temple, and if the outer court where they were allowed to go was an absolute madhouse, Where were they supposed to go pray? Where were the Gentiles supposed to go and meet God? And you know what the answer for the Jewish people was? It was, who cares? You see, they believed that a Messiah was coming, but they thought that this Messiah was coming to rid Israel of the Gentiles. This is so important to understand. The, Messiah's, the, the Jewish people believed the Messiah was coming, but they thought the Messiah wasn't coming to welcome Gentiles, but to rid the Jewish people of Gentiles. And there was actually an apocryphal book, meaning a book uh, of so-called scripture that we do not uh, include in our Bibles because it's not scripture, but it's an apocryphal book that was written a little bit before Jesus was born called the Psalms of Solomon, which teaches exactly that, that the Messiah would come and completely rid the Jewish people of all the other nations. That was because they didn't understand that from Genesis and onward, God's plan is always to welcome in the nations. And that's exactly what Jesus was there to do. The mystery of the cross is that the Gentiles have been grafted into the family of God. 
We don't ever think about that. We just take it for granted. But that's literally the number one thing that made Christianity so radical at first. The fact that non-Jewish people could be fully included in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and worship Yahweh without any of these Jewish rituals like circumcision and food laws and the sacrificial system. And I don't know of anyone who struggles with that idea of Gentile inclusion, uh, but that doesn't mean that we uh, don't struggle with the same thing. Uh, and I think this is a, a danger for us as well, that we can struggle with the fact that people who don't look like you, who don't speak the same language as you, who don't have the same skin color as you, who don't eat the same food as you, celebrate the same holidays as you, that those people are your brothers and sisters in Christ and are just as much a part of the family of God as you are. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't like being around people of different cultures or skin colors or languages, you're not going to like heaven. Plain and simple. And if you're the kind of person who deep down thinks, I don't care about missions. You know, maybe you wouldn't say this uh, out loud. Maybe you wouldn't even admit that you think it, but deep down, maybe this is where your heart is. You think, I don't really care about missions because, frankly, I don't care about those weird people who are different than me. Then let me tell you, Jesus wants to turn over that table in your heart because it's sin. And I can promise you this, uh, God's not going to make you a special gated community in heaven that's just filled with white Midwestern Hoosiers, if that's your context, uh, or uh, whatever your own context is. Uh, it's not how it's going to be. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so let me ask you, where is your heart? Honestly, it's probably filled with some prejudice. Um, just like mine. That's called having a sin nature. I think that uh, is um, it's very unfortunate that in our culture um, we uh, treat uh, the sin of racism or um, maybe cultural superiority or whatever uh, as different than other sins, right? So if I, uh, if I said that, you know what, there's there's a good chance that uh, you struggle with the sin of pride and that there is maybe deep down you have some pride in your heart. You know, of course. Um, but unfortunately in our culture when we say you, know, you struggle with the sin of racism and deep down you might have some prejudice and racism in your heart, uh, our first response is, oh, no, not me. I could never struggle with that. That's, that's the furthest thing from where my heart could be. And we're not willing to inquire in our hearts and say, is that there deep down? And Spirit, will you reveal that to me if it is there? Uh, because it's sin, and, and we shouldn't ever get to a point where we say, oh, I could never, ever, ever struggle with that sin. Uh, that's usually the starting point when that sin creeps in. And so before we... Uh, place ourselves in the shoes of Jesus this morning and ask, when do I get to flip over tables? Uh, those tables need to be turned, pun intended. And we need to ask, uh, well, where in my heart am I struggling with these same sins that Jesus was upset with? 
And those are two reasons why Jesus was upset as he walked in to the temple that day. He saw the poor, poor being exploited, and he saw uh, the Gentiles being uh, excluded. Uh, but there was a, another reason that Jesus was upset, and it's this, that Jesus saw the futility of their sacrifices. He saw the futility of their sacrifices. Remember, it's Monday. Monday before the cross. Jesus has Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday before Friday comes. The crucifixion is coming and it's getting closer and closer. And Jesus walked into a temple overflowing with the blood of animal sacrifices, sacrifices that would have to be made by the same people for the same reason the next year and the next year and the year after that. And here is Jesus. Think about this. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the one those sacrifices are being made to and the one who's about to be become the ultimate sacrifice from from now on. And I'm struggling to even find the words to sum up the significance of this moment. Jesus is not simply cleansing the temple. He's not just teaching them, well, you really should do your selling outside because that's not appropriate for God's house. Think about it. I mean, really think about it. If I know that my house is being bulldozed tomorrow, like eminent domain has come in and I, I'm in my last night in my home, you know how I'm not spending my final night in my home that's about to be bulldozed? Vacuuming. <laughs> Jesus isn't cleaning out the temple because he's so concerned that they do the sacrifices just right. He's ending the sacrificial system. He's driving it out. It's no longer needed. There's a beautiful passage that talks about this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 to 14. It says this, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained a eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Church, aren't you so glad that you don't have to offer sacrifice for sin? He already paid for it. Jesus entered into Jerusalem, hailed as the Messiah who would expel all the non-Jews from Israel by shedding Roman blood. That's what they thought was going to happen. And praise God, that's not what took place. God had a greater enemy than Rome, and it was death itself. And so instead of being the Messiah who would expel all the non-Jews from Israel by shedding Roman blood, he was the Messiah who would welcome countless non-Jews into the family of God by the shedding of his own blood. Praise God. To do once and for all what the sacrificial system could never truly do. He wasn't just cleansing the temple. He was ending the sacrificial system because it wasn't enough. And praise God. And we could end there. 
Uh, couldn't we? We could wrap it up right there. But I still think we need to go back to our original question of what would Jesus do? So if I'm trying to wear my bracelet and live like Jesus, uh, we need to answer this question. In what circumstances do I get to look down at my bracelet? And the answer of what would Jesus do is go flip over some tables. What are the circumstances when go flip over tables is the answer for me to what would Jesus do? And three uh, three circumstances. I'm going to give you a never, a sometimes, and an always. I'm going to give you times when we never get to do that, times when we sometimes get to do that, and then times when we always get to do that. And that'll make sense in just one minute. So first, never. I never get to flip over tables when the world, metaphorically speaking, when the world is acting like the world. This is so important. Oh man, we got to get this right, church. After Jesus raised from the dead, he gave the disciples their commission. And this is not what he said in Matthew chapter 28. This is not the great commission. He did not say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and flip over tables, baptizing people with your left hook, cursing them for all that they're doing wrong. And surely I'm with you always ready to throw down. That is not a Christian attitude toward the world acting like the world. Peter talks about the attitude that Christians are called to have when facing persecution even. He says this, but honor in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You need to understand, we don't get to take a pause from gentleness and respect because we think things are so bad that we get to enter temple cleaning mode. Jesus doesn't give us two modes to interact with the world, one gentle and respectful mode, one temple cleaning mode. That is simply not how it works. There's no excuse for Christians acting like jerks to non-believers. Now, it does not mean that we don't get upset with the way our culture just revels in its godlessness and arrogance. Of course that's upsetting. But our response to that is 1 Peter. In your, Christ, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And if you're constantly trying to pick a fight with the world, you're not displaying that you have a hope greater than the world. Do you understand that? If I'm constantly fighting, fighting, fighting against the world, that does not show the world that my hope lies beyond this world. You need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you and do so with gentleness and respect. And so the mission is to make disciples. And the strategy is to suffer like Christ. And so you can't flip over tables when the world is acting like the world. There is a time, I think, that you can sometimes flip over metaphorical, again, tables. And that is uh, Christian, in air quotes, ministries that exploit others. Christian ministries uh, that exploit others. Jesus' anger was in part because the temple was the place that claimed to speak for God and how to have a relationship with him, and they were doing it all wrong and essentially lying to the world about who God 
was. And so when we see that today, when we see people operating in the name of Jesus that are claiming to speak for God and yet telling lies about who God really is and what we know from his word, that should give us a righteous anger. And this is a different emotion than with the world. We should be sad about the lostness of the world, but it is okay to have a righteous anger about people who lie about who God is for their own gain. That is the definition of taking the Lord's name in vain. It's saying something about God that simply isn't true. And so we should be appalled and heartbroken when people are abused and lied to and taken advantage of in the name of Jesus. If there's ever a time for your righteous anger, that's it right there. Now, this doesn't mean that you have carte blanche to become a quote-unquote heresy hunter, right? Detecting the slightest ways that somebody might be thinking wrongly and then flipping over the tables and bringing the hammer down. Flipping tables is my spiritual gift. I can see everyone's theological errors and I just, I just let them have it. That's not your spiritual gift. That's called... Again, being a jerk. And uh, that's not what I'm talking about. But as followers of Jesus, there's a place for righteous anger when we see people taking advantage of and lying to and abusing others in the name of Jesus. It's wrong. It's evil. And it should cause us to be angry at that. So we never get to metaphorically flip over tables when the world acts like the world. Uh, sometimes can flip over tables when there are quote-unquote Christian ministries that exploit others. Uh, there's a time when we can always flip over tables, and maybe you can guess it, uh, but it's the sinful parts of your own heart. Uh, sinful parts of your own heart. And this is really the key, I think, to this whole passage, is thinking about where is the temple. And uh, Jesus was doing work in the meeting place between God and man, which was a building um, in the moment that he walked into that temple. Where's the new temple? Let me ask you that. Where is it? It's in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are the place now where the Spirit dwells. You are the meeting place between God and man. So let me ask you a question as we close. Is there anything going on in your temple that needs to be cleaned out of your heart? Anything that you think Jesus wants to remove? Is there anything that he's not happy with? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes is the answer. I hope you're not saying no. Uh, of course, we all have things in our hearts that Jesus wants to remove because it's not accurate of a reflection of who he is. And uh, so if you want to be the kind of person who says, I want to flip tables like Jesus, uh, you are free to do that. And the place that you must begin is the place where the temple is now, which is your heart. And so I want to encourage you, this is what we did as we closed the service on Sunday the 2nd. I want to encourage you uh, to just take a few moments right now and pray and just be still before the Lord and ask him the question, Lord, what tables do you want flipped over in my heart? What do you want removed? What's in my heart right now that's not honoring you? And, uh, no, something we say all the time, uh, Jesus is not against you because of your sin. Jesus is with you against your sin. And I love that. That's the posture that he takes. Uh, so this is not an exercise in making Jesus upset with you. This is an exercise in working together with Jesus to help 
uh, cleanse out your things in your heart uh, that he wants uh, taken care of. And it's also important to remember that when God looks at you, he looks at you with the righteousness of Christ already. Uh, so he's not just waiting for you uh, to be perfect so that he can love you. Uh, he loves you because you have been covered with the righteousness of Christ. And yet something about living in the time we live before Jesus comes back and makes all things right is that we still struggle with sin. And Jesus wants us uh, to be more and more like him. And so uh, it's been a, a long preamble to just say, I want you to just take some a few moments now and pray and ask the Lord, uh, that he would reveal those things in your heart. So I'm going to pray for you uh, and close, and then I'm going to encourage you to do that. Heavenly Father, I pray for whoever's listening to this right now, God, that you would just in grace, in your kindness, with a surgeon's scalpel, uh, identify those things uh, in their heart um, that you want removed. Um, because our sin is not good for us, God. And um, and uh, we want uh, to honor you in the way that we live, and you want us to thrive uh, in the way that we live in a way that is free from bondage of sin and shame and brokenness. So whatever those things are, Lord, just reveal them uh, to this person now who's listening. I pray that they would just know your love and your grace and your mercy in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.